0: to you again on another beautiful day here in the valley glad to have you along we continue with politics today i mean isn't that what everybody is talking about uh i mean after what we saw in nevada last night just the uh the percentages it's um some some people are already saying it's over i'm not quite ready to to do that here was some of the response last night after the Nevada caucuses. You
1: can choose between two Washington dealmakers or one
2: proven, consistent conservative. But I'm as conservative as anyone in this race. I will hold my record up against anyone running for president. I didn't just become a conservative like a year and a half ago when I thought about running for president. Oh. If you listen to the pundits, we weren't expected to win too much, and now we're winning, winning, winning. And soon the country is going to start winning, winning, winning. Well, again,
0: the numbers last night were uh, were pretty powerful for Mr. Trump. He finished last night with 45.9, 46 percent of the votes there in Nevada. Uh, Rubio came in second with uh, 23.9, 24, and Ted Cruz with 21.4% of the votes. So there's your top three. And then you drop down to the the other two now that are left, Ben Carson and uh, Kasich. Uh, Carson came in at 4.8, Kasich at uh, 3.6. Now, uh, Carson says, hey, I'm in this thing. And I'm not going to listen to the pundits. I'm going to keep on keeping on. Now, how effective that's going to be as time goes on, we'll only tell. Uh, Kasich, the same way. I, I think that uh, Kasich yesterday, uh, and this, is again, is prior to the uh, caucuses, I, I think he tipped his hand maybe just a little bit in what he said in one of the meetings that he held yesterday. Listen to him. I know how a lot of people feel. First of all, I don't know if my purpose is to be president. My purpose is to be out here doing what I think I need to be doing, and we'll see where it ends up. Joining me in studio, Jonathan Keller from California Family Council. Always good to have Jonathan with us, especially when we talk about all this political stuff. Jonathan, what did you think about what uh, Governor Kasich had to say there? Did he tip his hand, maybe?
1: Well, I I think Governor Kasich is probably going to stay in this race for the long haul, at least through Michigan and through Ohio, uh, because the reality is that Uh, it doesn't actually really matter the percentages of who comes in first, second, third in a lot of these early cases, because all of these early uh, states are proportional proportional distribution of delegates, which means that you can lose you can come in second or third or even farther behind and you can still come to the table with delegates for the convention that's going to be in Cleveland in July. And that's why, you know, your friend and mine, Hugh Hewitt has been talking about the fact that he really sees this possibly being an open convention, not not a brokered convention where you have the GOP establishment trying to pick someone over the advice of the party. But the reality is, you need one thousand two hundred and thirty-seven delegates to win the Republican nomination. Uh, At this point in the game, I think Donald Trump has something
0: about like
1: I think it's around one hundred and forty. Ted Cruz and Marco Trump
0: Trump has at this time seventy-nine. Okay. Cruz has sixteen, Rubio has fifteen, Kasich has five, and Carson has three. And again, oh. you've got to have twelve hundred and thirty-seven. Correct. So we are a long way off, but but as you said, at this early point, we're, we're splitting things up. But we've got we've got a big day coming next week with Super Tuesday.
1: Next week is going to be huge. Yeah, Tuesday, uh, March first, is the first of the Super Tuesdays. Now, as I understand it. I'm still a little bit unsure about this. It's so weird with how all the states do their different uh, delegate mapping. But I believe that that is still technically, even though there's a lot of states on the same day, that is still proportional distribution. That is not winner-take-all states on March 1st. Uh, There's going to be another contest on March 5th, another contest on March 8th. And then the second Super Tuesday, which is probably going to be about when we really start to see things finalize, is March 15th. Uh, Because.
0: that's that's the big one
1: that's the big one and that's because not only because it's it's technically only six separate contests it's uh it's got uh illinois missouri north carolina and the northern mariana islands but the big two prizes that day are florida and ohio and on on march 15th if john Kasich is able to pull out a win in ohio and marco rubio is able to pull out a win in florida uh, that is going to really make the race interesting because you could you could see a race heading into the convention where nobody gets that required number of delegates, and then you have to see some deal making happen.
0: Well, they're, they're saying that Ohio, Florida, and Texas, speaking of Cruz, are the make it and break it states for those individuals. Right. Uh, so lay out this scenario because the polls right now have Trump leading in Ohio, have uh, Trump leading in Florida. He is not leading in Texas against Cruz. So if um, if he wins Ohio, if Trump wins Ohio, if he beats Kasich in Ohio, is is that then the end of Kasich? I think that's the death blow for the Kasich campaign as a as a presidential
1: candidate for the top slot. However, uh, a lot of people are saying that depending on what happens there, you could see. I think this was Bill Kristol of the Weekly Standard a few weeks ago said that he thought the most likely ticket at this point, this was before Trump won South Carolina, but just after New Hampshire, he said, I think the most likely ticket may be Trump Kasich. Because you're going to see someone who I know. Skip over here. Our engineer is just a shuddering at the thought. But <laughs> uh, the, the the idea being that you know Kasich is is conservative enough on the issues of you know life, marriage, religious liberty. He's kind of a big government, compassionate conservative in the George W. Bush mold on issues of you know Medicaid expansion and you know uh, social justice issues. Um, but he is not a liberal. He is uh, the good news is he is not. Anywhere as liberal as the, someone like a John Huntsman that we had run back in 2012. Yes, yes. And he's also, I wouldn't say he's GOP establishment, but he has served in Congress. He has been a two-term governor. So he would lend some, I think, credibility, mainstream credibility to a Trump ticket. My only problem with that idea is that if you're going to have Hillary Clinton running on the Democratic side, and if you're going to have someone like a Julian Castro, who, former mayor of uh, San Antonio and um, now Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, a very attractive young uh, Mexican-American man. Uh, I-, I don't see how you run two old white guys on the
0: Republican <laughs> side
1: and make that a winning <laughs> ticket in 2016.
0: Well, you do have the imagery there. Well, let's move to Florida then. If, uh, if Rubio loses Florida, is that uh, the final stage for him?
1: Again, I, I, almost the same type of thing as with Kasich. I, I think that it's possible, almost a more likely ticket at this point, if, if Trump wins Ohio and Florida, then then I think he has to put one of the two of them on the ticket, and I would say in that case, you've got to make it Rubio, because Rubio is younger and better, and I think if Trump decides to do something interesting and run for only one term, that sets Rubio up to run for president as the incumbent vice president in 2020, which honestly would not be the end of the world. That that would be an okay situation. Um, I've, I've heard some people float that, which would make it very interesting, because um, it's been very difficult in many cases for a single party to maintain control of the White House for three consecutive terms. Um, but if you had something like that, there, there's not been a president that has only run for one term in a long, long time. I'm, I'm trying to even remember the last time that a, a president—it must have been Lyndon Johnson, right, that decided he was not going to seek re-election?
0: Yeah, and look what he was facing. <laughs> yeah. Look look what—and I think he knew the, the writing was on the wall. I could I could see that from a Donald Trump. I, I could see him doing this for four years and saying, eh, I want to go do something else.
1: Well, if he did that— um, uh... I again I uh I saw some some people on Twitter yesterday saying that they've moved, you know, the five stages of grief. They've moved from the anger and denial to they're starting to move to the acceptance stage of a possible Trump candidacy, uh or you know, a nomination of Trump.
0: Um I, I, I well, Go ahead. Let, let me let me move quickly to Texas uh, since we've run these other three. Uh, T, uh, Cruz is ahead right now in the polling in Texas, but let's say if he loses Texas, is that the end of him? Well, yes, no. But there's
1: bad news about Texas. Now, let's say that Trump wins Texas. Oh, excuse me. Let's say that Cruz wins Texas. Well, Texas is on March 1st, which means it's proportional. So a win for Cruz in Texas actually doesn't mean as much as a win for either Kasich or Rubio in Florida sure. or Ohio because if. Unless uh, Cruz really just blows Trump out of the water, um, it's possible that Trump could come away with a still significant uh, share of delegates and really negate uh, the, the effect of a win there. I mean, he'll get the talking point win out of it, but if looking at the other states on that day, Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, Colorado, Georgia, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Vermont, Virginia, Wyoming... If Cruz only comes away with a partial win in Texas and Trump picks up a good chunk of those other states... I don't know. It's going to be really tough talking points for any of the other candidates coming out of next Tuesday.
0: Well, some people think that we are just whistling past the graveyard, that we're just avoiding the inevitable, looking at the polling nationwide of how far ahead that Trump is, and that uh, we're grasping at anything to try to keep one of these other uh, candidates uh, alive. And, um, you know, with what happened last night with uh, 46% of the vote going to Trump, and leading in every category, they may have a little bit of validity to that. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll continue our conversation with Jonathan Keller from California Family Council here on Jim Franklin Live, giving you the right side of the left coast. Telephone number is 442-1680. That's 442-1680 to be a part of the program. Getting to the truth of the matter. Jim Franklin will be right back. This is Jim Franklin Live. This segment of Jim Franklin Live is brought to you by Harris Ranch. 21 minutes after the hour. Thanks for joining us. Website's JimFranklinLive.com. You can email me at Jim at JimFranklinLive.com. We're talking about what took place last night in Nevada. Jonathan... Excuse me, Jonathan Keller from California Family Council joins us in studio. Uh, okay, so with uh, Trump winning the way that he did last night and basically winning in every category, uh, here, I mean, he won among Hispanics. That was shocking. Yeah, I mean, here you've you, you got you, the two guys, <laughs> Rubio and Cruz, just listen to the last name, and Trump wins?
1: Yeah. It, it was really shocking. In fact, it, it, this goes to show what happens when you have two candidates uh, in Rubio and Cruz. That there are there are some significant differences, but they really are competing for a lot of the same votes. They're both Hispanic. Um, Rubio is technically Catholic, but his wife's evangelical. They go to an evangelical church, so they both compete very heavily for the evangelical vote. They compete for the religious liberty vote, for the pro-life vote, for the marriage vote. Uh, they're both young. They're both Cuban. Um, I mean, it, they, they've both got beautiful families. It's it's amazing because they allowed Trump to win uh, not only in Hispanics. Trump won among evangelicals. I mean, how, so so explain that one to me. I don't. I don't really think I can. It's a. It, it's something where if you had only one of the candidates in this race, if you had either Rubio or Cruz out, um, you would at least see something very different. Um, but the problem is that I don't know that that would still be enough to take on Trump fully by themselves. At least, at least not in Nevada. The the breakdown as we currently have it was Trump won forty five point nine percent of the vote, Rubio was twenty three point nine, and Cruz was twenty one. So you add that up, if you put all of Cruz and Rubio's together, you assume that none of either of their support goes anywhere else. Just the two of them would be 45.3, and Trump still wins with 45.9. Well,
0: uh, here's what Rubio had to say uh, about that yesterday.
2: The majority of Republican voters in this country do not want Donald Trump to be the nominee. I think that's been pretty clear now. The problem is that they're divided up among four people. So until there's some consolidation here, you're not going to have a clear alternative to Donald Trump.
0: So there has to be some consolidation. But just as you pointed out in the totals there... Between Cruz and Rubio, even if all of those came together, it wouldn't be enough. So then that does bring in the uh, Carson Kasich votes. It
1: does, and the problem is also I. It's really hard to know these numbers specifically because as as many polls as there were before uh, the elections started with uh, Iowa at the beginning of this month, there really have not been that many polls, and the the developments these last few weeks have been so. Uh, volatile between all the different debates and you know this and that, and um, as a result, it's hard to know exactly where people would go. But the the difficult thing is for Rubio supporters, and and just disclaimer: I'm a, I'm technically on the Rubio advisory board for uh, marriage and family. It's not an endorsement, but I am advising in a in a limited role that campaign on those right. issues, uh, but. I also love Ted Cruz. I would happily vote for him in the general election and I'd I'd happily vote for him uh, over Trump any day of the week. So the difficulty for Rubio supporters is that part of Cruz's main base of support is people who want someone from outside Washington. They want an anti-establishment candidate. And if Cruz gets out of the race, I could see a at least a sizable chunk, maybe not a majority, but at least twenty-five to thirty percent of his supporters are going to Trump because they want someone who's going to be more aggressive, who's going to be stronger on border security, who's going to be, you know, more about, you know, telling it to the establishment. So I, I, I don't know what happens if uh, if either Cruz or Rubio. Well, gets out and at that this was point. the
0: point that Donald Trump made in an interview this morning about uh, you know people say well all those votes would go to either uh, Cruz or to Rubio, but uh, Trump says no, you. Got to realize i'm gonna get a lot of those votes They,
2: they like, like to say it would be 54 to 46 like i won't get anything well i'm gonna get a lot of votes if any one of them drop out i would get a lot of those votes
0: I, and i think he's i think he's exactly right on that yeah. everybody's not going to run to the other non-trump candidate they uh, i think there are going to be that percentage and it's going to be enough that will basically cinch it for donald trump
1: i i think that I think the thing you have to look at carefully, the the, the state that I think is more predictive and and more interesting is uh, South Carolina and still dissecting the results of that from Saturday. The the trick with uh, Nevada is that, number one, it's a caucus state, which is weird. And and I don't know, I actually saw a lot of people on Twitter yesterday saying that this was kind of a disaster from an electoral perspective. People were reporting all sorts of voting irregularities and people getting handed more than one ballot. And and if you haven't seen it, if you you go on Twitter and you look at this, this is not like what we experience here in California, where you walk into the polling place, you get a long ballot, you you go into a private booth, you stick it into the machine, it's a printed slip of paper with little bubbles on it. You fill it out, you fold it in half, and you hand it back. I mean, there was more I, oversight, I felt like, when my church was voting to elect a new pastor, for crying out loud. I mean, I, it
0: was I, was... I was looking at some of the uh, pictures and the footage because of the irregularities, and, and you saw people sitting behind the tables that were, were receiving those slips of paper uh, wearing, uh, you know, candidate t-shirts, yes. Trump t-shirts, yeah. and, and, and now, and they said, wait a minute, that's intimidating to do that yeah. uh, you know that's where this does kind of not reek of an election, but uh, more or less a political party.
1: Well, and, and and that's that's why I would say you have to be careful. The Nevada caucuses were also incredibly small in terms of the actual number of votes cast. Um, y- yes, it's true that um, you know he won. Uh, Trump won, but i i can 't remember the exact number of votes, but Nevada was much smaller. it was a much smaller turnout and I think the the real question is going to be moving forward now that now that Bush has dropped out. Um, I think Carson and Kasich stay in, but Super Tuesday is going to be the real kind of make or break decision is how, how do people start to vote? Do they, do they now realize that they have to vote against Trump and, and now does some of the money that has been on the sidelines come off and start attacking Trump? There's a, there's one statistic I saw yesterday that just blew my mind for all the campaigns together, the, the campaigns and the super PACs together for all the candidates on the Republican side in this cycle they have so far spent 225 million dollars of the 225 million dollars they have spent 9 million of it was against trump
0: my goodness i mean it's it's less than 5% was spent attacking the front runner yeah and and another thing is in that breakdown i saw where how little That Trump has spent on his campaign. It's crazy compared to the others. He and he joked about
1: this. um, (laughs) He joked about this. I think before he was running, and it was it it was something that no one believed. I don't think it's actually true, but it's almost true. He said, "If I ran for president, I would be the only one to make money doing it." (laughs) And and, and it's true. He's
0: put in so little of his money; it's almost inconceivable. Well, and I think now, and I I heard this this morning (laughs) from some of the pundits that they're starting to use the word the inevitable, that, uh, that, this, that the Trump train has so much momentum now behind it that there's no way to stop it. I, I personally, I don't think we're to that point yet, but it's definitely picking up some steam. We'll take a break here. When we come back, Jonathan Keller, California Family Council, uh, will continue to join us as we talk about the results from Nevada. And, and then when I come back, Jonathan, I do want to get in on the possibility... Although an outside possibility of will we see Rubio Cruz possibly come together. We'll do that next here on Jim Franklin Live, giving you the right side of the left coast. This is Jim Franklin Live. This segment of Jim Franklin Live is brought to you by Womona Frozen Foods, committed to excellence. Cruz and Rubio. Rubio and
2: Cruz. Sounds like a Miami law firm. If you've been injured on the job, call Rubio Cruz. That's
0: from SNL Rubio and Cruz. All right, Jonathan Keller, California Family Council, joining us in studio. Uh, is that the only thing that could stop the Trump train, Rubio, I, Cruz?
1: I think that one of them could stop him. Uh, I I think that it's it's really tough to say. I, I think on the one hand, part of the problem with Rubio jumping out and, and endorsing Cruz is that I think there's a lot of traditional GOP as column establishment, whatever you want to yeah. call them folks yeah. that do not like Ted Cruz because of some of the ways he acted the first couple years he was there in Washington. So I think it'd be really hard for a lot of them to hold their noses and throw their support behind Ted Cruz. Um, on the flip side, like we talked before, I think if Cruz gets out, there's a lot of his folks that would go to Rubio, but a lot more would also go to Trump. So, uh, I, I think the interesting thing is what happens when they start to really throw some, some serious money in some of these states on advertising in pushing back on some of the things that uh, Trump has said, not just historically, but even but, just since the start of this election cycle.
0: Yeah, but see, here's I, I look at that, and let's go back to, uh, to South Carolina. Uh, Jeb Bush spent millions yeah. of dollars attacking Trump. To, to To no impact. Now, people say, well, that was Jeb Bush, I mean, who's going to vote for him, as we've already seen. Uh, I, I, I think, I, I mean, people with money don't like to throw it down a hole. And, That's true. Uh, and I think that the handwriting may be on the wall to some of those uh, major donors to say, you know, hey, wait a minute. It, it is what it is. Let's, let's hold that back. We've got another run at the Democrats, and definitely we don't want... Hillary Clinton in so we're going to we're going to hold our money until the big election.
1: Well there there's one I think you're right in a lot of cases and I think that's why for example you've seen Sheldon Adelson who is the big casino magnate there in Nevada he you remember last time around he gave a ton of money yeah. millions and millions of dollars to the uh, Newt Gingrich campaign and kept Gingrich in the race, and that's why Gingrich ended up winning South Carolina last time around. Uh, he has not formally endorsed anybody. Um, he voted in the Nevada caucuses, but he was not um, he was not as big of a player, I think, in Nevada as a lot of people thought. Um, but now that that state is done, it's going to be interesting to see where some of his money goes. The one other story that makes me think, it's, it's so hard to read these things, but this came out uh, yesterday morning, um, Jim, I don't know if you saw this, but the top operative for the Koch brothers is a guy named Mark Short. He's the president of Freedom Partners, and he quit his job at Freedom Partners and joined the Rubio campaign yesterday. Really? Yes. And just to clarify, the Koch brothers are, I mean, you hear if you've yes. uh, listened to any of Harry Reid's speeches from the floor of the Senate in the last several years, they're the most <laughs> evil men at the center of American <laughs> politics.
0: The devil incarnate.
1: But they are, the thing that's interesting about them is they are not particularly focused on social conservative issues. I mean, they they, they don't do a lot on the marriage issue or on the life issue. You know, they care a little bit about religious liberty. They've given some money to um, pro-family organizations in key states over the last few years to help elect good Senate candidates. But I think what they really care about is, if you listen to them talk, they care about the future of the country. They care about economic prosperity. They care about freedom. They're a little bit more libertarian focused. And uh, they have a massive network. They have a network of about, uh, the number I saw yesterday was around 900 mega donors. And the fact that they're not just kind of quietly giving a little bit of money to Rubio, but the fact that the head of their entire network is made that big of a jump to the campaign. I don't know. It's it's, 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 it's at least a little bit of maybe a, a tell, a poker tell to me that says there might be some wheels and machinery turning behind the of, scenes.
0: Of the two, Rubio and Cruz, and I hate to even start this conversation, but people have already started it. When it came to a VP pick by Trump, which one has more of an opportunity, a chance of? of making that list i think it would probably be rubio because unfortunately uh it's kind of hard to have your vice president as the guy you called the liar. Yeah,
1: and, and, you know, it's so funny how, how quickly time changes in the last six weeks because we all remember from the debates in, you know, November, December, January, everybody was attacking Trump except for one person, and that was Ted Cruz. Correct. I mean, they seemed very buddy-buddy. They were friendly. You know, there's that one scene in the debate where, you know, Trump, like, slaps him on the back and says he's a good guy. Everyone, everyone thought there was this backroom, quiet deal where they weren't going to attack each other and Cruz was going to maybe try to be the VP or Trump was going to be the VP. Now, this last debate, it was Rubio that was laying off of Trump and being very quiet, very strategic. And in a lot of the things that he said, he definitely wants to win the nomination, but he is not he is not attacking Trump in such an aggressive way that I think would poison the well for a potential VP selection.
0: Well, again, and we're talking about the both of these. Cruz and Rubio are young men, right? And so, to fill that VP position uh, at you know four or eight years down the road, then they're still in a prime spot to run. Absolutely, and and Trump has floated the idea. That
1: he might only run for one term, he has not. He is not definitely said that. He's not committed to that, but he's kind of thrown that out there. And if he did that, um, which would be a little bit, a little bit unprecedented, um, it would, it would be very interesting. It would pave the way. And and I think if he picked either Trump, if he picked either Rubio or Cruz for that VP slot, I hate to say it, I, I really. I, I do not know if in good conscience I could vote for Trump under almost any circumstances. But if he picked one of the two of them as the VP, I'd at least have to really strongly pray about it and hold my nose and see what I wanted to do.
0: Well, I think what it does is it makes Trump, and it goes to what you're just saying, it makes him palatable for, uh, for true conservative voters to say, well, well I see who's, who's second in line there. Because here's what I, I think of the Trump presidency. He's going to be the big voice up front, but there's going to be the man behind the curtain. There's oh, going yeah. to be somebody that is literally running the day-to-day operations that is that is making it work. He's He's going to fly around in his plane. He's going to do the press. He's going to do that, but there's going to be somebody that's going to be making it happen. And if it was a Cruz Rubio, and it's going to be hard to see Cruz there because of the bad blood, but the Rubio... Uh, I, I think that would make it palatable for for many true conservatives. All right, got to take a break. We'll come back. We'll continue this. I want to talk about the uh, about what's happening with the uh, Supreme Court nominee or the possibility thereof. That's next here on Jim Franklin Live. Getting to the truth of the matter. Jim Franklin will be right back. Just a quick programming note you do not want to miss next week. Uh, next Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, we are going to be broadcasting live from the Middle East, from Israel. I'll be in Israel next Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and we're going to be broadcasting the program live from, from Jerusalem. We'll be there. We'll be in Tiberias and be talking about what's uh, what's happening in Israel, what's happening in the Middle East. We'll be visiting some of the military sites there, uh, talking with the architect of the wall on the Gaza Strip. It's going to be a very interesting program. We'll take your calls, so don't miss that. Mark that down, uh, 11 to noon, Jim Franklin live, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday of next week, we'll be broadcasting live from uh, Israel. Monday and Tuesday, mark it down. Jonathan Keller is going to be sitting in the uh, in the chair here for me. It's always uh, good to have Jonathan, and he'll be uh, he'll be hosting next Monday and Tuesday. So, Jonathan, let me say thank you for uh, for doing that. Well, don't thank me yet. I'll just try to not burn the studio <laughs> down. So, <laughs> it, it will be just fine. I guarantee you. Let's move to another issue that has uh, a lot of press, and that, of course, is the Supreme. Court uh, nomination uh, with the passing of Justice Scalia and the uh, now the vacancy there, uh, this fight that is going on between the Republicans and the administration or the Senate leadership and the administration about uh, the nominee. President says I'm going to nominate somebody, and yesterday the Senate came out and said, "Well, you can do what you want to, but we ain't we ain't going to do a thing. We ain't going to listen. We ain't gonna we ain't going to have any hearings. Uh, We're going to wait." Your thoughts, Jonathan?
1: Well, I think this is first off, tip of our hat to our friend uh, Hugh Hewitt who started the hashtag immediately. I think it was the day of uh, Justice Scalia's
0: death. I, just, I want to know something, Jonathan, are you getting paid by <laughs> Hewitt to mention his name? Is there like some, every time you mention his That's name, right. you, get, you get, I mean, I know he's on in the afternoon, but well, it's uh, just, you know, it,
1: I think what do they call it in the radio business? Is, is it cross promotion or forward promotion or something? Yeah, we I'm, call
0: it payola in our old days. <laughs> I just, I know there's some, cause I see too many pictures of your Facebook with you and Hugh together. I think there's a conspiracy going on here. Well, he, he is a,
1: It's been amazing to me to see how he's kind of blown up just this election cycle. And this was even another coup for him in terms of media attention. He started this hashtag last week, uh, no hearings, no votes. And a lot of people came out against him and said, well, gosh, you know, don't you want to at least let some time go? I mean, do we have to politicize this so quickly? And he made the point, look, the, the Democrats within hours of the announcement that Justice Scalia had died, they were already putting forth names of nominees that President Obama could get through and why the Republicans couldn't block this and how it would be unprecedented for Republicans to speak out against this. But uh, their own vice president, uh, Vice President Biden, had a different thing to say back in 1992. He actually said, um, uh, he mentioned the fact that they were, if President Bush was going to have a nominee, um, he was he should not be allowed to appoint that nominee. He should not be allowed to even hold hearings on that
0: nominee. So, yeah, they, they have a very short memory. They the do. Democrats do.
1: Well, and last week, if you remember, they played some audio from uh, both, y- you did, Jim, some audio yeah, from Chuck Schumer yeah. and from President Obama. And this is what President or Vice President Biden, then Senator Biden, had to say in 1992.
2: As a result, it is my view that if a Supreme Court justice resigns tomorrow or within the next several weeks, or resigns at the end of the summer, President Bush should consider following the practice of a majority of his predecessors and not, and not name a nominee until after the November election is completed. The Senate, too, Mr. President, must consider how it would respond to a Supreme Court vacancy that would occur in the full throes of an election year. It is my view that if the President goes the way of Presidents Fillmore and Johnson and presses an election year nomination, the Senate Judiciary Committee should seriously consider not scheduling confirmation hearings on the nomination until ever, until after the political campaign season is over. And I sadly predict, Mr. President, that this is going to be one of the bitterest, dirtiest presidential campaigns we will have seen in modern times.
1: So if the 92 campaign was going to be the bitterest, dirtiest we've seen in modern times, I mean, I I cannot even imagine what is going to come
0: out of the toolbox. So how are the Democrats, how are they going to respond to that? I mean, you couldn't ask for more clarity in what he felt and what he thought and I mean it lines up identically with the position of the Republicans in the Senate now and you know what's good for the goose ought to be good for the gander a, a lot of people are now
1: saying that that may be if not the death blow it's going to at least make it extremely tough for the Democrats to to get this through to try to force through a nomination because they, you literally have Chuck Schumer who yep. is going to be the new Senate Minority Leader in 2016. He's already been announced, or 2017, uh, he's been announced to be the new leader once Harry Reid leaves the Senate this year. You have uh, Patrick Leahy, who is the ranking member on the Judiciary Committee, who said the same thing. Uh-huh. And now you have the Vice President of the United States who said the same thing. And you have the President of the, the United President, States. when he was a senator, he sided right with them. There's really almost no one more. I mean, I guess if you could find some audio from Hillary, that might, or Bernie, that might be about the only thing that would be better, but it's, it's almost impossible for them to not look completely like hypocrites at this point. Now, I think we know that generally the Democrats don't mind looking like hypocrites if they can advance their agenda, um, but it's going to be difficult. The one thing, though, that they have said uh, this actually just was a story published today, Jim. The Republican governor of Nevada, Brian Sandoval, he's the former attorney general of Nevada, and he was elected, I believe, in 2014. Um, apparently President Obama is considering nominating him for the vacancy. He is Hispanic. He is a centrist, so he's pro-abortion and pro-Obamacare, but he technically is a Republican. And my hope is that regardless of what letter is behind this guy's name, the Republicans in the Senate will hold firm and,
0: no, as Hugh Hewitt says, hashtag no hearings, no votes. Well, you know that uh, President Obama, there is no way that he is going to nominate somebody that does not follow his ideology of what the Supreme Court should be. And you can just look at the last two people Absolutely. that have been placed upon that to see where that would go. And I think that's, again, why your friend and mine, Hugh, has has made that stand. I, I join him in that. Take a break. Come back for final comments here on this edition of Jim Franklin Live. Don't go away. <laughs> Right side of the left coast. This segment of Jim Franklin Live is brought to you by Cool Hand Luke's, the coolest joint in town. All right, folks. So As tomorrow's program, uh, Assemblyman Jim Patterson has introduced a uh, piece of legislation up in Sacramento called the Politician Accountability Act. Basically, what it would do, it would force state legislators who leave office before their term is up, to use their remaining campaign funds to pay for the special election to replace them. And as you know, that's exactly what uh, we're facing here in Fresno uh, with Henry Perea uh, leaving office. Uh, And now we've got a special election. We'll have uh, Sillman Patterson on the program with us tomorrow to talk about that. I I like the idea, and I, and I, I like the name. The first time that I'd seen the, uh, the name of it, the Politician Accountability Act. Which putting accountability and politician in the same sentence does seem, you know, uh, goes against each other that way. Jonathan Keller, California Family Council. always want you to give the folks the website and how they can get in contact
1: with you. Absolutely. Uh, CaliforniaFamily.org. Uh, we're very active also on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Facebook.com uh, slash CaliforniaFamily. You'll see,
0: you'll see pictures of him and you, it all over that.
1: <laughs> that. We try. We try. And okay. one other thing, real quick, Jim. I just got to plug my good friends at Right to Life of Central California. Our good friends are hosting a great event here locally uh, Tuesday night. March fifteenth at Westside Church of God, seven p.m. The niece of the legendary Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, Dr. Alveda King, is going to be here in Fresno, seven p.m. Tickets are just five dollars for adults and free for students. So, I, so how
0: how can they get those?
1: They can find those out at RightToLifeCA.org. ca righttolifeca, like California.org.
0: Folks, I would encourage you. I've heard her speak several times and powerful. You've seen her on Fox News, on several of the, uh, uh, the uh, network programs. Don't miss this opportunity. One more time, Jonathan, give them the date, time, and, and how they can get tickets.
1: Tuesday, March 15th at 7 p.m. Tickets are 5 bucks. You can also call
0: 229-BABY. That's 229 Jonathan, thanks for being with us today. Absolutely. Thanks, Jim. Okay, remember, John's going to be sitting in this chair next Monday and Tuesday. I'll be in Israel broadcasting live next Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. But don't worry, back tomorrow right here in Fresno. God bless. Have a great day. See you then.